0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios, and of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Pavan Agrawal. Pavan is a partner in Foley's Washington, D.C. office with a practice focused on intellectual property litigation and licensing. Pavan is currently the chair of the firm's innovative technology sector and formerly served as chair of the IP department as well as a former member of the firm's management committee. In this discussion, Pavan reflects on his parents immigrating from India and his experience growing up in Rockfield, Maryland, attending the University of Maryland for undergrad and the George Washington University Law School. Pavan reflects on how he discovered IP law as a practice and shares his path to Foley. Due to the various leadership positions Pavan has had in the firm, I also have him reflect on the business of law, as well as being a leader within Foley and Lardner. Finally, Pavan provides additional insight on the importance of getting to know people and maintaining your network. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Pavan Agrawal. Pavan, welcome to The Path and the Practice. I'm so excited to have you here today. And I'm going to have you start like all of my guests, which is by asking you to give your professional introduction.
1: It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Alexis. Professional introduction, gosh, I guess I suppose that means from post high school. You know, the the basic data is I've uh, got a BS in electrical engineering from the University of Maryland way back when, almost 30 years ago now. And I've got a law school degree from George Washington University Law School. Back in 1996, I did work at a different firm during law school. I clerked for a year at the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, and I've been with Foley since September 1997 until today.
0: And then what's your practice area and focus?
1: So my practice area is generally in the intellectual property space, so mostly handling patents, but also handling trade secrets and some other items. I happen to focus probably a little bit more on litigation and licensing. Then I do patent portfolio development or agreement type work. And mostly, you know, it sort of ends up in a various technologies, but some of the technologies are high-tech, some application in the medical space, and automotive is a big area for me, as well as communications and computers.
0: Well, we're gonna unpack all of that. And this is something I do every episode where I get the attorney to talk about their practice area, to highlight some of their accomplishments. And I'm like, let's just set that aside for a while. And talk about how you got there, starting somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up?
1: So I'm originally from India. And however, I immigrated to the United States extremely early in life. I was six weeks old when we immigrated and we came to New York. We were there for about six years, and this was in upstate New York. And after about six years, uh, my parents decided it was uh, super cold in upstate New York. And we had some relatives in the Maryland area and so that's where we moved to and I've been in Maryland ever since.
0: And what specific town or suburb is that? Like what what would you claim as your your hometown?
1: Rockville, Maryland.
0: Okay. So if I could get a snapshot and I think we may want to go back and even talk a little bit about your parents cuz I think it can be interesting to hear about why people immigrated to the US but maybe before we do that if I was to find you say Pavan in like 5th, 6th, 7th grade, you know, in Rockville, Maryland, what sort of kid were you? What were your hobbies? What What were you into? Like, give me Give me a snapshot.
1: Yeah, so uh, boy, you're, you've really drawn me uh, back a number of years, and you know, just to be clear, around I've lived in sort of Gaithersburg, Germantown, Rockville. It's all sort of the same area in Maryland. And back then, it happened to be Germantown. I was a kid that just loved to play outside, loved to hang out with friends. I was not very good at studying, so I would do it, uh, as my mom said, sort of on the stairs the morning of as we started school. But I love to just sort of be outdoors and be around people.
0: And the reason I like to ask this is because I think particularly when law students are considering a law firm or considering Foley, when you read the bio of a lawyer or particularly a senior partner or someone like yourself who's currently and previously served in a variety of management positions, it's really intimidating and so it can be nice to re- be reminded that we're all just people at some point, we were also just figuring it out. So I actually like that you shared the part about maybe studying wasn't your strongest and that you were doing it on the stairs. <laughs> I appreciate that. Did you have any sort of sports or hobbies or anything like that, that you also did?
1: Yeah, I love to play basketball back at the time. I enjoyed football, but I'm not the biggest person. And so there'd be more of a neighborhood football where I'd get hurt uh, quite a bit. And otherwise, I started to get into running, but that was probably a little bit more in the high school years than it was call it in the middle school years.
0: We will talk about those high school years a little bit. Although I did say I wanted to ask, what do you know what it was that caused your your family to immigrate to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, that that one's real simple. It was a very strong desire on my parents' part that we immigrate to the United States in order to provide us with a better education. I think we were very happy from what I understand. Of course, I was only a month old, so I'm not super recalling it, but, you know, we're a happy family where we were, but as, you know, relatively smaller town in India, perhaps not the opportunity. And they just felt like we got to get our kids to a place where they can focus and get a great education and live a better life. And that will live with me forever.
0: Wow. Yeah. And was there already some family here? Did they know anyone when they arrived?
1: My dad's older brother had arrived just a a little bit before, maybe a year or two before we immigrated. And he had encouraged us, but taking that leap of faith with myself and my sister, who's two years older, was really an amazing step as I look back on it.
0: Absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing it, as well as the, what you said about the focus on education. You can kind of see how they're, they've instilled those values in you early. But I had paused on asking about then that progression to high school. You told us a little bit about life in middle school. In high school, in terms of the focus on college, where did you go? How did you decide? What What was that transition like for you?
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy to think because now I have uh, one kid in college and one kid that's uh, going to go to college soon. And, and I further understand now how much you sort of look at different colleges. How do you figure out what you're going to do with your life? It was way easier for me back then. I honestly didn't think about it a lot. My dad said, you know, I'm a civil engineer. I think you ought to be an electrical engineer. That's a really high demand job. I liked math. I said, okay. And I didn't study for the SAT very much, also didn't do very well in the SAT. I uh, did fine on math, not so good on reading. My dad said, you know, well, what about Maryland? It's it's right here. It's, clo- it's close. I'm like, okay, that's what I did.
0: I'm nodding as you said that because I think, well, there's such a wide range of experiences in terms of considering college. But now, of course, with the information that's out there and just how competitive it can get, I, I, I can absolutely understand what you mean by it's a different experience that you had than your your kids just went through or about about to go through. But it sounds like so that that's what you did. You went to the University of Maryland.
1: I did. Yep. University of Maryland College Park.
0: How was that transition to college for you? Was it?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. so here's here's another thing that most people live just live different lives. I never left the house. I never left the house until I was married, which is after law school. And so the transition was, Yeah, it was definitely a transition because I, you know, drove to college every single day. I'd studied pretty hard and I came home, but I still came home. And yes, college life is different because there's not nearly somebody guiding you from class to class. And apparently, you know, as it seems, nobody really actually cares if you're there or not. As at least a little bit of that feeling. And so you got to just instill in yourself that sense that I'm going to keep up with what needs to be done. And live that experience.
0: Absolutely. And there's actually two threads I want to pull on related to that. One earlier when you mentioned, it was sort of like, I think you should do this. Here's a college you should apply. I think there's a lot of people who have that experience based on a variety of factors in life where they don't necessarily scour the nation. They go to what's close and convenient. And so I like hearing that story from you because I'm sure there's a number of people who will identify with that. And then before we talk a little bit about the academics and your, you know, what it was like focusing on, Engineering, I'm curious. Was there at all any push on your end to live the house? Did you leave the house? Did you ever ask, "Hey, mom and dad, you know, what if I got an apartment?" Or sort of what what was the thought process around that?
1: No, and you know, part of it was uh, growing up. We lived a, rel- a relatively modest lifestyle. I'm super super happy, and I'm obviously amazingly grateful for what we had. But it was a relatively modest lifestyle, and so the thought of being able to save some money while living at home was good. And and my parents made clear that, hey, we can pay for college. Um and that's sort of what we can afford. And, you know, now again, looking back, I realize what impact that has and that, you know, how much they really did for me. But I just felt it was easier to live at home. I'd actually never thought at that time I'll live somewhere else. So I continued to work. I was actually working at a grocery store back then. I had been working there since I was 16. I continued to work there while I was in college and honestly didn't really give it a second thought, but that I would be living at home. My sister had lived on campus for a little bit. She also went to the University of Maryland, but she also was living at home part of the, you know, sometimes, and then she'd also live on campus part of the time. But it, for me, it was just a matter of living at home and it, I honestly didn't really give it much thought.
0: Well, you know, and you just shared a, a part-time job and I don't always get into these on the podcast, but when they come up, I do like to ask, as everyone knows, being a lawyer, you're at a professional services firm. You know, the client is number one. I'm I'm curious if there were lessons you learned either about customer service or about people and working in a grocery store that either help you to this day or just for lessons you've taken forward in life. Anything worth sharing from that?
1: Yeah. You know, you know, work at a grocery store. I had mostly did stock work that is stocking the shelves, but I also got to run the register. And especially when they got busy. They just sort of allowed me to just start doing it. I guess they realized that it was something I could do. I enjoyed it. You interact with people uh, in that atmosphere and you find that the nicer you are and the kinder you are, then the more sort of, if you will, outgoing you are, you get along with the folks around you, both as your colleagues at work, but also being in in a sort of customer-facing situation as well. So that, that definitely was something and I think I started to develop at that time but just a little bit because I was a super shy uh, back then.
0: That's really powerful. I'll occasionally run into aspiring lawyers, let's call them, who that that the types of experiences they've had working so far are retail or in restaurants and they'll sort of dismiss what they've learned and I'm like, "No, no, no. <laughs> that is still valuable. You will you will take that with you. Don't don't diminish that." So you're in college, you're focusing on engineering. What happens next? You, you spend four years, you earn your degree, and then what?
1: In the middle of college, you know, I was I was pretty good at studying. I'm not trying to say that means I was smart. What I mean is I knew how to study for very long hours, and I studied uh, awfully hard for every test. And just a sense back then that people around me were smarter, and but I could make it up by doing more work, but. At the same time as I was sort of going through engineering, I wasn't sure that I was actually going to be a very good engineer. And I had a uncle who's my dad's uh, younger brother, and he was a patent lawyer. And so he introduced the concept to me one day while I was a junior. And I thought, that sounds interesting. Maybe that's what I'll do. I don't really like reading and writing though, but maybe I'll look into law school. And so that's what I did. I ended up taking the LSATs. And right after, engineering school, I went straight to law school.
0: Okay, a comment on that is, and at this point, I've had a number of IP lawyers on the podcast. It's always interesting to hear about how people learn of the practice area, because it's not one that you're necessarily gonna see portrayed in media, you know, in pop culture anywhere, just, right? So it, it's interesting to hear that, that your uncle really played a important role in you considering law school and also paving the way to IP. Okay. So now law school's on the radar. How do you figure that out? How do you decide where you're going to go?
1: So now there's a little more focus because patent law fits with a technical background. And, you know, we're very fortunate being in the DC area that we've got some great schools in the area that also specialize in IP. And so George Mason and George Washington ended up being sort of at the top of my list. I was at first waitlisted for George Washington. I had gotten into Mason, but then somehow came off the waitlist for George Washington. So I went ahead and decided to go to George Washington.
0: All right. So GW it is. And I will say, realizing that we also have 25 or so years of practice to cover, I don't want to spend too long in law school, But but I do like to ask senior partners about that experience because... Frankly, I just think it can make a law student feel a little bit better
1: <laughs> about, <laughs> yes.
0: about whatever they're dealing with right oh, now. Yeah. So from what you remember of law school, you know, what was that transition like? Was it easy? Was it hard? Did you like it? Did you not?
1: It was very hard. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, I didn't, especially at that time, like reading and writing. And it's completely the opposite of my brain <laughs> That's compared right. to doing math or other things that seem to have a clear answer. And you yes, get into law exactly school right. and it's, yeah, you get into law school. It's all about spotting issues and analyzing and you can have both sides of an issue. But I was extremely fortunate because I joined a study group that I, if I recall, were seven of us. And it was the same study group that studied together for the next three years. And so that became my rock of a group of people, uh, many of whom we still keep in contact with now. And it made it a lot more bearable, but the transition was certainly a difficult one. And the only way I knew how to manage it was to spend that much more time. And so I'd actually get to law school, get to GW about eight in the morning every day. I would get home probably around 1130 every night. And then on the weekend as a treat, my treat was to go study at the University of Maryland instead of going back to GW. You know, I've always felt like that's how I try to make up, bridge the gap, if you will. If you're not necessarily the smartest person in the room, maybe you can be among the most hardworking and fill the gap that way. And that's what I did in law school.
0: You also had me at seven person study group. Hats off to that group, because I do think for the law students listening, seven may be a lot of people to be effective. <laughs> so.
1: That's not an unfair statement, but it was a good, strong group. Uh, people, a lot of fun people, except uh, I do remember one guy, he would come in and we'd be studying on the side, a few of us, you know, just on the weekend when I did go there and he just pull out the paper and read it. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he barely ever studied. He would participate in our study group, barely ever studied, still ended up in top 15%. And I thought, huh, you clearly have this figured out.
0: He hasn't figured out or he was just coasting on the, on the rest of you. (laughs) But, but I, I mentioned that because as important as I think it is for all of us to share our experiences, because I'm convinced there will be someone whose life experience isn't, you know, too dissimilar from your own and really may draw inspiration from this. I always want law students to still know that, you know, you need to figure out what works for you. So for some people, that study group and for the, group that you all were. at worked really well, but I'm by no means saying to the law students listening, please go find six other people to study with
1: Yes, definitely. and that you have
0: to, do, right? But but there's there are a variety of ways. And I love that you were all able to support each other and stayed such good friends well beyond that. But so you do figure out law school, you're able to activate the other side of your brain, which by the way, you're not the first engineering or, or math type or just like STEM type to say that about law school how they especially had to adjust because of what you said. They went from something that was very objective, frankly. Also, I've heard there's like a certain way of studying as an engineer that it might be more like you're getting the math and then you get to just keep applying it as the kind of the the, the proof. Whereas law school, it's a completely different thing. So I think it's great to highlight that for people as well. But you do figure it out and you went in knowing IP was what you wanted to do. So. What does it then look like in terms of you finding a job and figuring out what you're actually going to do after law school?
1: One of the guys from our study group, he was applying for a clerkship. And if you haven't gotten the drift, I'm not one to sort of venture out and look for things at that time and try to figure out what are all the options and everything. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to apply for a clerkship over at the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. I'm like, huh, I wonder if that'd be kind of interesting. Maybe I'll apply too. And so I ended up applying, and you know, for some grace of God, ended up uh, getting a clerkship with uh, Judge Shaw over at the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. So that's what I ended up doing right after law school. I had applied, you know, and, and during law school, as I mentioned, I was working at a smaller firm. I did interview at Foley as a summer clerk. I was rejected at that time, which is okay, you know, as a big firm, and understood they had a lot of great applicants. But after getting the clerkship. Then, you know, I was, if you will, perhaps a little bit more opportunity to look at firms across town. And and I had mostly intended to stay in the DC area, but look at firms across town and see who may have what to offer. And I was fortunate enough that one of the people I worked with in law school at the other firm was here at Foley. And he he was a great guy. And so then I ended up talking to him and ended up meeting with a few people at Foley. And that's why I ended up here
0: are just a little bit to unpack one we all of course caught that i was initially rejected from foley but that's a that's <laughs> yeah. a really nice that's a nice arc though to the career poppin because it's like you too can one day be on the management committee of a firm that initially rejected you see it can, you never know what could happen in life but but also if you could say just a few words on the federal circuit in particular for those who aren't familiar with an ip practice. Why is it significant and why would you want to clerk on a federal circuit out of all all the circuit courts?
1: Yeah, a court of appeals for the federal circuit has exclusive jurisdiction on all the appeals in patent cases across the country. So whether a district court case, whether the International Trade Commission or the like, they're going to get in patent cases, uh, the federal circuit's going to be the court of appeals that gets to hear those cases. I'm not saying patents in some fashion aren't addressed somewhere else, but in terms of what I'll call the core competency of patent cases happens to be at the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, happens to be right here in town. And so it ended up being a very nice fit, and I feel extremely fortunate to have done it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as a former litigator, I never clerked. I, It wasn't until a few years out of law school where I actually could even appreciate the experience that clerks Got in terms of understanding how the courts worked, which may sound very obvious as I say it, but I don't know that it always is. So I do imagine that you getting that sort of—I hate to say—but like that peek behind the veil, behind the curtain, (laughs) as to you know how judges consider and the mechanics of looking at these cases likely was valuable perspective and has been. So I just wanted to take a few few moments. I don't know if there's anything more to say about about that experience before we move on.
1: I guess I would only say to the extent anybody is considering a clerkship and it doesn't have to be at the court of appeals or the federal circuit or some circuit court. It can be in any kind of venue whether it's in bankruptcy court, you know, it's in a, a local state court, it's in a, another federal court somewhere or it's at the international trade commission or whatever it is. There's a lot of value because you do see the thought process that happens on the other side, as well as it's a year or two years or whatever the time period is to allow you to really dig into the law. And I didn't have a full appreciation at that point, you know, having just gone to law school of the impact that a court like that can have or impact that any court can have. And then once you sort of understand that a bit better and you're just sort of engulfed in the legal side of things, if you will, the, the law itself, then it makes it that much more interesting when you get out and you litigate or you do any kind of other practice. But it also, you have come out with a bit more substantive knowledge than than others may have, at least in the area that that court focuses on.
0: Which is really valuable because the recurring theme in this show is how law school is great. It prepares you in some ways, but it doesn't necessarily I'm being charitable right now. It doesn't necessarily teach you all the ins and outs of what you need to do to to actually practice whatever your desired area is. So that means you're starting with a little bit more context at the very least. So you do start as a lawyer. And I'll say for you, because we do have some ground to cover, we certainly aren't going to march through year by year. But what I'd like to do is get sort of early reflections on... What it was like for you, as you can recall, being a new lawyer, you might even want to weave in some advice to those who are in that position. And then we'll kind of just move through some of the larger, you know, then that transition perhaps to partnership. We'll, of course, talk about leadership and your practice area and what keeps you busy these days. But in terms of that initial transition, now I'm a practicing IP lawyer. You previewed for us earlier as to what your practice area is. The things that I caught are trade secret, litigation, licensing. So, what was your initial practice focus? I don't know if it's still the same now or different. And how was it adjusting to life those first few years as a lawyer?
1: Yeah. So, the first few years as a lawyer, it was also a time when I had newly gotten married. Uh, I was married in 1997 to my wife, Priya. And, you know, law firm life is certainly, if you will, in a big law firm life, it can be time consuming. And I, but I had. An incredible set of mentors, uh, the one that stands out the most is Dick Schwab. He really took me under his wing and allowed me to learn the practice, the law side of it, but also client relationships and service and all of those kinds of things. In the first few years, I did an awful lot of work with him and he is more on the counseling side. So we do patent opinions or you know, other kinds of patent related work. I also then got to know another mentor, John Feldhaus, who sort of really started to teach me the patent litigation side. I would say, in a, as fortunate as I was, working much of my early years with those two people, in a particular, probably mentored a bit by Dick Schwab. My advice to others is to get to know a few different. Adjacent areas of the practice, and also to have a broader network of people that you work for, because you learn that many more styles and you learn that much more sort of variety, which makes you a stronger lawyer overall. I was very lucky to do both patent litigation and some patent counseling. And so I I felt like I started to understand each area. For example, you know, when you're writing patent applications, you know, what's going to happen on the other end. In a litigation. And then, in terms of litigation, when people are taking apart what happened during patent prosecution, I had a little bit of a feel for it already in terms of, oh, well, here's sort of the normal ebb and flow that occurs, et cetera. So I think that that experience in that early years was awesome and it continued to be great. But it, But having those mentors, having those people that really look out for your career, it's such a huge difference. You, of course, have folks you grow up with inside of any organization, whether it's a law firm or otherwise, but having those folks around that you can really sort of learn from not, you know, and sometimes those are the same people that are extremely upset at what you did. You learn that much more those times and rightfully so, but learning that side of not only the law itself, but how to grow and how to nurture client relationships when people give you that autonomy and allow you and give you that responsibility. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And I can't thank them enough for it.
0: Well, and there's so much wrapped up in what you just said, but I I, I love that you raised both sides of the well, one. You have to learn how to practice and how to be a lawyer, which, frankly, I think we we talk a lot about in the legal industry um, and acknowledge that needs to happen. But adding in, in many ways, equally as important is the business of the law firm, the business of your client, being able to have that customer service orientation, which I actually think for, particularly for junior lawyers in a large firm, it can be easy to forget that that's part of the job too, or not so much be exposed to it in the early years because you're so focused on the skill development, as you should be, but it can lead to a little bit of a rude awakening when someone's finally like, asking you about business development, your network, and this and that, and you've been practicing for a decade. We like to avoid that, right? We like to, you know, at Foley, we equip our lawyers with this understanding earlier on, but I think just overall within large law firms, it's really easy to forget, particularly out of law school, which is so academic. You can pretend like you're not actually doing work for real clients because you're, if you're really separate from them in those early years. And I just, so I could riff on that forever, but that's so key what you just said, because there's a bit, this is a business as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and honestly, just getting to know clients. And I probably at that stage, it was more about just making sure they're happy with the work I was doing. I think I've, I hope that I've evolved probably in the past 10 years or so, much more to understanding the key to just knowing people and being reflective of who they are and the role that they play and the fact that they have a life outside of what they're, you're interacting with them about. And so it's, I think it's probably at a different level than it was back at the time. But just understanding client relationships, even at that point, even though I wasn't doing as good a job on sort of building my own network, but having you know somebody like Dick Schwab around who really trusted over time, trusted what I did, and I can't tell, say how many times, how often I can say how much I appreciated what he's done for me in my entire career.
0: Well, there's two other things that come up as well um, out of what you said, which is with the importance of mentorships and relationships. Frankly, those are people who can, they know what you don't know. They know what you should know. And you did also say that at times, because of the learning you're doing, those also may be the people who are going to tell you when you've royally messed up, which perhaps can be awkward. But as a lawyer, that that's going to happen. And it's, it's a way to learn.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and it is from those experiences You get the attaboy accolades and those are great, but it's ones I can remember almost each instance in which I could just feel the disappointment, whether expressed (laughs) or just on his face from Dick. And I also certainly learned a lot from that.
0: Well, it's always powerful, like I said, to have a senior partner reflect on that because who knows, there may be associates dealing with that now. You know, maybe people don't deal with that anymore. I'm sure they do. (laughs) So it can just let you know that in terms of your development, you're not alone in that experience. And before we move further along in your career progression, I also did want to highlight something you said about you understood other aspects of the life cycle of what you were focused on you try not to be just myopic in terms of I'm working on this little piece. Like you you said, I think you mentioned how you understood how from, you know, patent prosecution that could later lead to litigation, but just whatever your practice focus is, there's usually other aspects to it. So maybe more broadly for litigator versus corporate, it's understanding someone bought a business at some point, the corporate guys worked on XYZ documents 10 years later, we're fighting over it, but just trying to get as much context as possible. I, I, don't know, I just thought that was really powerful and wanted to, to reiterate that as well. I don't know if you have any more to say about it, but that's really important.
1: I think and more and more as people go through their career and some people are able to do this much earlier and they sort of see what I'll call the business focus and you know, the extent that we end up t- chatting a little bit about kind of where we sit as a law firm right now uh, at Foley and kind of what our current firm strategy is, It is much, I believe, while a number of people do this individually, and we've had various efforts at it, this sense that we've really got to partner with our clients to understand what is really impacting them as a business and where are they going? How do they fit in the market in doing all of that piece? We're still lawyers at the end of the day, but the more we understand that and then understand kind of how that can impact different practice areas of law. That I think is a is an area that we're continuing to evolve in as a law firm, and you know, to the extent that people can kind of spend a little bit of that that time earlier in their career and think about it that way, I think that that can be extremely helpful.
0: And we will talk even more because, like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about your leadership roles, and we will definitely talk about your role as head of the technology sector at the firm. But we'll let's talk a little bit more about your practice and how it develops. So you've reflected on the really the very early years. I won't ask you to do, a, say, a summary of each year thereafter for another 20, 20 or so years. But I suppose overall, there is that question of how did you develop as an IP attorney to focus on what you focus on, on now? Perhaps you could reiterate what your current mix of practice focus is and to the extent you feel like you have any niches within that. You mentioned it, but it was about 35 minutes ago. <laughs> so so remind us.
1: So current practice area, uh, patent litigation, patent licensing, some strategic counseling as well. It really becomes an issue of what the client needs are. I've had clients that I've been fortunate enough to work with since I joined the firm and they continue to be clients of the firm. I'm super proud of that. It, it sort of ebbs and flows between those areas depending on the needs of the client And then depending on, you know, sometimes litigation can be all encompassing based on the life cycle of the case itself. And so so you end up, you know, certainly spending suddenly days and nights worried about a certain case or two. And then you've got to look for some help, if you will, on the counseling side or vice versa, you know, where there's time that I can spend more time on counseling because that's what's helpful for the client. Then great. That's a that's where I'll focus. And that that was actually true throughout the years from. The time of working with Dick and uh, also working with John and as making partner. And then after that, whether you say then, do you have further niche areas There are some technology areas that I I really enjoy, whether it's an application in the electric vehicle or autonomous vehicle connected car space, some AI stuff, which applies AI applying to both in the high tech space, but also in the health space. Uh, Some of those areas to me are, are pretty fascinating.
0: There's so many things there. I was just thinking, I wish I had like a three-hour podcast, so now I have to pick which direction I want to go into. <laughs> but before we talk a little bit more about technology, and you, you briefly talked about men- making partner, which at this point was some time ago, general reflections in the difference between being a partner and associate, as well as what kept you at Foley this long to make partner and continue to focus and then your lead really as- ascend into leadership at the firm. And I apologize. That's two questions mixed together. So basically, say whatever you'd like about one or both of those things.
1: Sure. I think for most people, and I, I appreciate it changes over time, and it depends on the person. But you know, my goal was also one, I'm not one to change much. And this is a great firm. I was supported throughout my career as an associate, and I was very lucky to have made partner now, going on about 18 years ago. And again, that was on the backs of others and on the shoulders of others. The practice itself uh, didn't change a whole lot. I did end up being able to play a few different roles in the firm, and I certainly have learned so much more about the firm and how the business of law firms operates. But at that time, making partner was probably a lot easier in a big law firm like Foley than it is today. And I appreciate that when I see some of what our senior counsel are doing now, I, and I see who they are and what they've accomplished and all the things they're doing, I'm like, oh boy, I'm not sure I would have ever made partner under the current situation. But I think if you work hard, you keep those relationships around you, people uh, do and will make partner. And then it's a matter of understanding probably a little bit more of the business side understanding what drives law firms and client relationships being at the top of that. And so probably focusing a little bit more time on that side of the practice, but also realizing that, if you will, the buck stops now with the relationship partner more than it does anybody else. And so you may be sort of the last person to leave, if you will, because there's nobody else to turn to.
0: You mentioned a bit about leadership. So let's talk about that because so you're currently chair of the firm's innovative technology sector. You're a former member of the management committee rolling off not too long ago within the last year or two. And you're also formerly chair of the intellectual property department. And so let me just say a couple things for listeners to orient them. So at Foley and Lardner, all of our practice groups are arranged into three larger departments. We have IP, we have business law, and we have business litigation. And then we also have a 12-person management committee, essentially serving as like the board of directors for our CEO. And then additionally, we have offices and we have now technology sectors and practice groups. At most large law firms, there's a lot of ways to be in leadership. But I think of things you just said are really that segue between how once you ascend in the leadership, the business of the firm. The clients absolutely matter, the practice area expertise matters, but now the business of the firm is also front and center. So maybe we could unpack a few of those roles I mentioned that you've been in, starting with the management committee and your experience on the management committee, or even maybe things you feel that people don't necessarily appreciate about a management committee member.
1: It's uh, certainly an absolute privilege to have served this firm on its management committee. As you indicate, uh, the firm structured with three departments, and our DCs, uh, department chairs, or DCs, uh, as I would call them, probably play among the most influential roles uh, inside of our law firm beyond the CEO and the managing partner. But the management committee is really a treat and a privilege to be on because you get to see the law firm as a whole and your focus is on where is this law firm as a whole heading. And you know you get a lot of information from the CEO, the managing partner and others, sort of, hey, here's how we think, here's the direction we think we should go, et cetera, and the like. But the overall firm strategy And what we do in terms of bringing in new folks, and especially at the management committee, we're talking about partners and how do we determine compensation and and things like that. That's done at that level of the law firm. And you end up interacting, like you do in a lot of different settings, interacting with a team of people. And they're generally, I think, chosen a group of people that is ultimately looking out for the good of the firm way above their own practice. And maybe perhaps, I don't know if somebody's necessarily seeking a title. I would say that to a T, nearly every person on that committee during the time I've served is a group of people that isn't worried about having the title of being on the committee, but is very interested and focused on where they think the law firm should be and what is in the best interest of the law firm as a whole. And I think that's probably that point of view and understanding kind of the overall direction of the law firm is is just simply fascinating. That's the only way to say it.
0: No, it absolutely is. And I know everyone's not oriented this way, but I'm a bit of a nerd for the business of law and the business of how you know one law firm in particular works and so as i've had opportunities to interact with management committee members to present to the management committee i'm always particularly at foley really impressed by one just the sheer time commitment and thoughtfulness of the members of our management committee. And then also as the firm's director of diversity and inclusion, I you know I will just say kudos to Foley for having what I think is a, a quite diverse management committee for many years running, particularly in contrast to some of our peers. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight that just given my role at, at Foley and Lardner. And it's something that I like that large law firms are doing, but that Foley's been focused on s- for quite some time. So I just wanted to say that as well. But I also really appreciate you clarifying The role of the management committee, the significance and what they're doing, particularly in contrast to department leadership, which you also were because you're also a former chair of the intellectual property department, which is put makes you chair of I think there's approximately three or four hundred. If, if I start including agents and some of the other timekeepers within IP, which is also another tremendous leadership role to hold, as you, as you indicated.
1: Again, very fortunate that Jay Rothman, the CEO, asked me to go ahead and be a department leader. And before that, I had been a practice group chair actually about three months after becoming partner for the electronic practice group and then became the vice chair for the department some years later, and then Jay asked uh, if I would serve as a department chair and, you know, again, a a true privilege and you you get the, I guess I would say this, you you start to realize the true depth, for example, as a department chair, the true depth of the IP practice of this firm. You have that many different people, all professionals, ultimately rowing in the same direction and you do your sort of day-to-day stuff and, and you got to deal with, you know, maybe certain issues are arising with a specific individual and, you know, maybe there's some some potential conflict issues of the like. But when you step back and you realize sort of the the sheer depth of the department as a whole, it's a really powerful, very sort of awe inspiring feeling in those instances when you get to sort of for lack of a better way to say, stand up in front of everybody and represent that team. It's a really nice treat and it's something that I will uh, carry with me. That department chair role was probably where I became what I'll call a little bit more outgoing. As a relatively shy person growing up, extremely shy in law school. And even when working at this law firm for many years, pretty shy person didn't really get out of my office that much but when those other some of these roles you inherently have to be out and about and i think that has really helped me open up as a person and then get to know people across this firm and as a department chair it's awesome because you just you get to see some associates and patent agents and others grow up through the system then they become partner and you can see you know you're super happy for them and and they're doing some great things you you see what your partners are doing, and it's it's amazing the kinds of things that they are out there accomplishing. When you get to cheerlead and you get to do that in front of the management committee, for example, or you get to do that in front of other people and to so it comes with the privilege is a sense of enjoyment of uh, getting to know that group of people. And on the management committee, you know, there's one subcommittee is called the compensation committee, and they ultimately determine you help determine together with the management committee, the compensation for partners. And that, that part's not so interesting, but what is fascinating is that we get to do pre-compensation interviews. And when I was on the compensation committee, we got to do those and we literally sat, so call it four or five of us would go and ultimately interview every single partner in the law firm. And that's when you realize the true, like, wow, each person has grown up in their life and has done so much to become and be a partner at this law firm. And you can read about it. You can look at profiles. You can, you know, read their biography, do all that. You sit across the table from people and you start to really get to know them. And I think you find that this law firm, a couple of things, we got some awesome people. The culture of this law firm in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, that really Midwest Culture that this law firm continues with, very collaborative overall, very collegial, group of hardworking people that want to do some great things and they really want to see their clients succeed. And you then see that in different practice areas and in different people and a different in terms of seniority levels across the firm. And it's awesome to see. Yes, it's time consuming. Yeah, we still have to practice law, but it's probably one of the most eye-opening, and rewarding experiences that I've ever had inside of this firm.
0: Those are some wonderful reflections, and I think the energy and enthusiasm around your service in those roles is palpable, which I absolutely love. And I'm obligated to highlight, I have to say, so Foley has a number of firm values, and one of them is stewardship. Which I truly have seen so many Foley partners live and breathe, and I think you're epitomizing it right now. And that focus on leaving the firm better than you found it and being service to the firm, you know. And as we're in what I think will be one of my last substantive questions for you, and I'm saving the most recent for last. As we went through your leadership roles, they weren't necessarily in you know the certain order, but I did want to talk about your role as chair of the technology sector. Because we touched on it earlier, but in addition to these other leadership roles, there also are sectors at Foley, which is a slightly new approach. For a number of years, Foley's had industry teams. But if you wouldn't mind saying, you know, what a sector is, what it means to be chair and what it means to be chair of the technology
1: sector. Jay Rothman was kind enough to ask five of us, this is now, gosh, in sort of the middle of the height of the pandemic in summer of 2020 or so hey, take a look at the firm strategy plan and let me know what you think. And then he challenged us and he threw out some questions that were frankly very difficult to answer, but it caused the five of us to really think, hmm, what really matters in terms of for clients and how should we perceive and build this law firm and what direction should we be in? And we started to coalesce around this idea that, there are certain big things out there that are affecting businesses and whether they are they are businesses that operate within a certain segment or they're simply affected by them there's these big ones that are happening and there are areas where this firm has a tremendous amount of depth already and or enough depth and breadth that it can then elevate and elevate the brand of the law firm if it focuses at a greater Effort, sort of a greater teamwork effort in that direction. And so, you know, we talked a lot about what do we call it? It ends up being called sectors, but the idea being, we ultimately said, you know, energy, healthcare, life sciences, manufacturing, and innovative tech are these all-encompassing areas where this firm has great depth across practice areas and across offices And the more that we can get people rowing in the same direction in these four areas, not to the exclusion of others, but in these four areas, then we think we can sort of elevate the counsel that we ultimately give clients, which ultimately also puts us in sort of building our brand. And that's how we sort of ultimately ended up with what we call the sector approach. So if you take innovative tech, It's not just about whether a client happens to be a tech company, but you take, say, a sub-area of it, like artificial intelligence, where artificial intelligence really affects so many companies across the board, no matter what kind of company they are. And if we look at ourselves, and Jay termed this, uh, if I recall, through the eyes of our clients, when they look out, it's an area that's going to affect them no matter where they sit. And we said, all right, that's how we've got to start looking at the world not start, but look at it that much more on an overall team base. And the beauty of it is it just forces, in a sense, that much more collaboration among our lawyers, no matter what practice they're in and no matter what office they're in. And if we can showcase that expertise in this fashion, that's why we ultimately went down the road. And I'm lucky to to happen to be the chair at the moment for the innovative tech sector, We've got some great chairs, but what's more important than the chair is the lead team that runs the sector and then everybody that participates in it. I think that that team is what makes the real difference. The chair happens to be somebody that helps sort of steer the direction a little bit to uh, play assistant in terms of ensuring that we're moving the ball forward, but it's really that collective effort that's uh, that's great to see and what is really going to move this law firm forward.
0: Absolutely. And I love you providing that, that origin story for the sectors. And then also for, I guess this is back to the law students who are listening. So the sectors are really what allow us to service all aspects of that client's needs. So as you said, it's not that they have to be necessarily in that sector, but they really may have, maybe they are, or they have something that touches on it. And we're able to bring to bear all of the expertise across the board, which could be an IP lawyer, you might need a litigator, you might need a corporate finance person, you might need, you know, and so on and so on. But each of those lawyers will have had experience working on that particular issue in that particular sector. So it's also a really great and empathetic way to give client service. You know, let's make it easy. Here's all the things you're going to need. So I can't help but just stress and highlight that a little bit. And, you know, Pavan, we're getting close to time. So I'm going to ask you for a shorter answer on this. And then I'm going to ask you my final like overarching question, which is you've touched a lot on leadership at the firm, do you have advice to, you know, say the Foley lawyers or maybe another lawyer who's farther along in their career and does want to step into leadership? Is there anything you'd recommend that they should keep in mind?
1: Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, is leadership something that people aspire for? I never had aspired for it. I've never sought after it. I was lucky enough to have been asked to do it. But I think it's, you know, you find yourself sort of among a group of people, the more you get to know them. The more you get to know where they're coming from, some of the things that they're facing, and then you are willing to sort of say, "Hey, here's where I think we ought to head. Here's how I think we ought to plan this. Here's how I want to help. I guess that to me, in terms of leadership, I've done been through a lot of quote leadership training where you know there's sort of characteristics of leaders that they focus on. And I think that people can look at some of those, whether it's sort of reasonable optimism having a vision, doing all of those things, they don't necessarily come naturally. You can work on them. But probably the biggest thing that I heard that I hadn't really, that struck me the most was I happened to be in some leadership training, gosh, three, four years ago. And they said, you know, you really should just focus on your strengths and accentuating them more than fixing maybe your weaknesses. And I thought, wow, That's a great point because as you get further and further in your career, the chances of changing who you are, much less changing those around you, diminishes. But if you can accentuate some of those strengths and then see where the strengths of others are and use that in a collective way, that really makes a great impact. And so that that has definitely moved forward with me ever since I, you know, at least I sort of focus on thinking about that much more. The other part of leadership, I'll just say last bit, is that network of people around you. It's, you know, you people use the word leadership, but at the end of the day, you're all part of a team. And whether I get the fortune of working on a team for a particular client on a particular matter, which in that team is great, I also have this team of people around me, my peers, if you will, the ones that I call on when I'm really looking for something, and that team of people... You know, some of whom happen to have leadership titles in the firm. Maybe others don't necessarily have that title, but that's where you find your true strength and true abilities to make something happen. And that really helps. So, you know, so if you one says, "Oh, uh, you know, you're sort of in a leadership role," that's you know, it's it's just a title, but it's being among that team of people. And and I have currently this network of people that I very really confined network that I you know sort of count on to get me through the tougher stuff. But if there's any sort of accomplishments I've had as a leader, it's because of the people around me more than it is me.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for those reflections. And then my last substantive question for you is advice for that person either contemplating a legal career or earlier in their career. What's just some of that, your overarching words of wisdom to them?
1: Realize that's what it is first. It's a career. It's super important. I mean, it's something you got to spend a lot of time on throughout your life. It is only one part of who you are. I would say keep your network. You never know where that network goes and you know if there's nothing better is I've done a much better job of kind of just trying to understand people and get to know people and it's so much more rewarding when you do that. And so it's not your hardcore advice, make sure you study hard, make sure you do this, make sure you do that, but it's probably a little bit of a broader reflection of getting to know the people around you and realizing you never know where you're going to end up. Uh, But it's that group around you is the one that's going to give you the best strength.
0: That's exactly right. I think that's perfect advice. And then my last question is, if a listener has a comment or question for you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Of course.
1: Happy to do that. An email. And in these days, even once in a while, people actually make phone calls. So happy to receive your other one.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Pavan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.